Welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishak Arnajani. I'm joined today by Gerald Horn, who holds the Morris Professorship of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. Professor Horn is the author of a recent book titled The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, out this year from Monthly Review Press. Could you tell us a little about how this project came about? This project came about, number one, as part of a long-term project of working my way back through history, trying to understand fundamental questions, such as how a person of African descent wind up in North America speaking English. Of course, the precursors to this book, just speaking arbitrarily, or books that I did on 19th century slavery, for example, the book I did on the 18th century, the counter-revolution of 1776, which actually begins in 1688, the book I did on the 17th century, uh, which actually ends in 1688, the so-called glorious revolution in England, in other words, which to me is a kind of hinge moment in terms of the eventuation of the United States of America. And so the 16th century project was a logical extension of these other projects, both chronologically and otherwise, because my own estimation is that trying to understand the origins of the United States by parachuting into 1750, for example, which is what many historians do, I think it's akin to coming into the middle of a movie and thinking that you understand everything that happened prior to your arrival. So I felt it was necessary to go back to the origins of this settler project in North America which logically begins with Christopher Columbus in 1492. But then once I got to Christopher Columbus in 1492, I realized I had to understand some of the history before then even. And as you can see in the book, uh, I point to 1453 as an important moment when the Ottoman Turks uh, oust the Christians from what is now Istanbul, which helps to induce existential fear amongst Western European Christendom. And then you have this remarkable confluence of 1492 with not only Columbus, but with uh, the Muslims finally being ousted altogether from the Iberian Peninsula, principally what we now call Spain, and also the Jewish minority. Uh, being subjected to an accelerated inquisition, that is to say, persecution on the basis of not being Catholic. And then after teasing or fooling around with 1453, I felt that I had to go back to the so-called Black Death in the 14th century uh, because quite a bit of anti-Semitism which is a particular part of the story that I tell, is incited by the so-called Black Death, that is to say this plague where obscurantist elements tended to scapegoat the Jewish minority for that, which then leads to their ouster uh, from a good deal of Europe, and then with many of them trickling into Africa, and as my story suggests, then becoming an essential component of what we now today refer to as the African slave trade insofar as being cartographers and uh, mapping out uh, a bit of territory that theretofore had been unknown. In in fact, uh, if you go to the records, you'll find that as late as the middle part of the 19th century, you had a number of Europeans who felt that a good deal of the African interior was terra incognita, um, which helps to inspire the travels and explorations of 
of Livingston, for example. Um, then, after dealing with that aspect, I thought I had to go back to 1291, when London expels the Jewish population from England. And that's important because many historians have told us that when the Anglosphere begins to embrace uh, Jewish settlers in North America, contrary to their Spanish competitors, we're told that this is an aspect of enlightenment, for example, but that seemed to clash oddly with this idea of expelling the Jewish population in 1291, which many of these so-called enlightened historians do not touch upon. So I felt I had to try to understand that phenomenon. It really helps to, in my estimation, open the door to understanding how what we oftentimes refer to enlightenment is really just pragmatism <laughs> in the sense that of uh, the Protestant Londoners are under the gun in the context of religious conflicts in the 1500s. Uh, they need every warm body they can round up in order to confront rebellious indigenous and revolting Africans. And they could not be choosing in terms of settlers. And I think that that helps to open the door to the Anglosphere welcoming those that they theretofore have been warring with. Irish Catholics, for example, uh, Scottish dissidents, for example, and of course the Jewish minority, not least the Sephardim that had been expelled uh, from Spain. And then, in, in terms of trying to understand the roots of racism and white supremacy, I felt I had to go back to the Crusades in 1095. Uh, that is to say, the Western European Christians feeling the urgent need to reclaim what they call the Holy Land and from Muslim control and how this helps to ignite a process where these Muslims are seen as a kind of other uh, to a certain extent they're racialized and if you'll notice in the first pages of this book I draw an analogy between how the Jewish minority was treated in England and how black and Native American people are subsequently treated in North America in terms of allegedly having peculiar odors, uh, allegedly uh, having tails like monkeys, uh, a barring of intermarriage and miscegenation, as to use that term from the United States. And likewise, uh, I think I'm trying to draw an analogy between this initial, or this early, I should say, confrontation between Western European Christendom and the Muslims in terms of creating a kind of antagonist uh, that is easily fungible and transferable to the way that the black people and indigenous people are eventually maltreated in North America. So that's my, my long-winded response to your simple question. Right. Well, I mean, you refer to this book in, in how you frame it, but also how you begin the story as, as a book about, quote, the seeds of the apocalypse. Um, yes. I'm wondering what work is that concept of apocalypse doing for you in the, in the story that you just laid out for us? What apocalypse are we talking about here? Well, first of all, um, <laughs> I'm trying to suggest that what befell the indigenous population, which was subjected to a kind of genocide, not to mention dispossession, and what befell Africans, millions killed in the Middle Passage in terms of the transatlantic slave trade, uh, many dying from maltreatment and mistreatment, when they're encased in these forced labor camps in North America, that this is an apocalypse. And obviously, in terms of what's at stake, to use your phrase, <laughs> I think what's at stake in part is that I think 
that too many historians, and even historians of the left, even historians who consider themselves to be radical, um, I think they've accepted too much of the immaculate conception notion of the United States of America, the creation myth of the United States of America, uh, that yes, there were misdeeds and transgressions, but at the end, it was all worth it because after all, you had the creation of modernity, you had the creation of the Enlightenment, you had the creation of a Bill of Rights. And in some ways, it reminds me of the recent statement by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, who is being touted already as a possible Republican Party nominee for president in 2024, who in castigating and denouncing the New York Times Magazine 1619 Project argued and of course, that 1619 project, you recall, came out in August 2019, uh, spearheaded by the journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones, who won a Pulitzer Prize for a commentary in that special issue, where she tries to draw a connection between the ills of slavery and the ills that black people face today. Um, and Mr. Cotton said that slavery... I th I think he thought he was quoting the founders of the United States, was a, quote, necessary evil, unquote. And in making that statement, which appalled many, I think that in some ways he was just in sync, whether they want to realize it or not, with many liberals and even radicals, who, as I just suggested, <laughs> argued that at the end of the day, despite the genocide, despite mass enslavement, it was all worth it. And so I think that's one of the reasons why he incurred so much wrath, because he unmasked, if I may use that phrase with multiple meanings in this context, uh, he unmasked the creation myth of the United States of America. And I might also say that this uh, 1619 project, uh, it incurred so much wrath, not only because it suggested that slavery was a motive force, for the secession from the British Empire in 1776. Just like slavery, I would argue, was a motive force, obviously, in terms of the U.S. Civil War in 1861, and slavery was a motive force for the Texas secession from Mexico in 1836. But, of course, we have to maintain this pristine image of 1776 and cannot associate it with something as odious as slavery. And... So that led to furious denunciations <laughs> that are still continuing, by the way, interestingly enough, of the 1619 Project. And as I said, when I spoke at the New York Times uh, before the lockdown in early March 2020, when I was asked to be on a panel discussing this controversial project, I think that and anybody who's interested can consult YouTube and they'll, they'll find the video. I said that in, in some ways these U.S. historians, amongst their many flaws, is that they're akin to what I would call antiquarian physicians. That is to say, you go to a doctor, and the doctor oftentimes, before coming up with a treatment plan or diagnosis, uh, has a detailed medical history of you, the patient, that it takes down. And so at the end of the process, you say, okay, doc, go. Uh, What's the diagnosis? What's the treatment plan? And the doctor says, well, I'm just into history for history's sake. Uh, I'm not into history in terms of trying to make you well. But that, that's basically what these historians do. Uh, they, they throw up this great wall between the past and the present. Matter of fact, that's called presentism. If you try to show a connection between the past and the present, which is really ridiculous. No wonder this country's in trouble. I mean, these historians have been engaged in a a massive form of historical malpractice for which they should be shamed and for which I think that they'll eventually be embarrassed. So let's, let's dive in then to some of the turning points in the story that you're telling as, as you know, you're helping us think through the, the long centuries between, for example, the, the Crusades and in our present moment, a really important sort of fulcrum for what you're telling us is England and what yes. changes when English dominion begins to overtake French and Spanish claims to the Americas. Can you talk us through why England and, you know, the specificities of what's going on in Florida, for example, why yes. those are such important turning points for the story that you're telling? Yes. 
Well, in my 17th century book, in the first paragraph, I quote the late Marxist historian Christopher Hill for the proposition that at the beginning of the 17th century, in the early 1600s, England was a minor kingdom on the fringes of Europe, but by the end of that century, they're on the rise to becoming the leader of the pack, so to speak. And uh, my answer to, answer to to try to unravel that problem is that the short answer is slavery, settler colonialism, etc., which puts England in the passing lane. In this book at hand, the book that is the subject of our discussion, I'm posing a similar question, but there are also adjuncts to that similar question. As suggested, why are we in North America speaking English, English when, from the point of view of 1492, uh, perhaps we would not either we wouldn't be here at all, or we'd be speaking Spanish, or we'd be speaking Turkish, for example. And so then the question becomes, well then, once again, how did England rise? <laughs> and uh, I locate the answer to that question in a number of different areas. One, I put it in the context of a religious conflict. Uh, that's to say that England, London becomes an early convert, if you like, to the Protestant Reformation ignited by Martin Luther in what we now call Germany in 1517. Uh, there are many reasons for that. Uh, there have been countless plays, movies about this, and Henry VIII and his desire for divorce. And in fact, there's a, a, a before the lockdown, there was a play that was taking Chicago by storm that was on its way to Broadway, precisely about this issue of Henry VIII and and his uh, spouses, shall we say. And I don't ignore or dismiss that particular approach, but it's apparent, number one, that uh, there are religious conflicts taking place between the Catholics and the Protestants, that as a matter of survival, a diplomatic masterstroke of London was to forge an alliance with the Muslims, not least the Ottoman Turks, who were an antagonist of Catholic Spain, an antagonist also because the Ottoman Turks had welcomed and embraced the Sephardim, the Jewish population that was fleeing Spain and the Iberian Peninsula after being expelled in 1492, just like the Ottoman Turks became a Muslim excuse me, became a patron of the put-upon Muslims who were in the process of being expelled in 1492, and that expulsion finally reaching completion in the first decade of the 17th century. And this was an important alliance, that is to say this alliance between the Ottoman Turks and London, and what happens in part is that some of the mo monasteries in England are confiscated with some of the proceeds actually being shipped east to the Ottoman Turks so they could better confront the Catholic powers, principally Spain, uh, which helps to fuel this reputation of perfidious Albion, that is to say unprincipled London, which cuts deals against its fellow Christians, against the interests of the presumed heretical believers in Turkey. And of course, since I'm not, uh, I'm not your father's U.S. historian, I, I try to draw a parallel between, oh, no, it's no insult meant to your father, who I don't even know, by the way. That's just an expression from the United States. Right. Um, uh, I try to draw a parallel between that and uh, what happens in the 20th century. <laughs> when, when, when Nixon goes to China, it cuts a deal with uh, China against the mutual antagonist in Moscow. 
uh, even though Nixon eventually said that he might have created a Frankenstein monster, which was quoted, by the way, by Secretary of State Michael Pompeo in his speech at the Nixon Library just a few days ago, where he sought not only to put a stop to this policy of engagement, as it was called, that has led to massive foreign direct investment into China that's created this juggernaut and not China in the passing lane, just like England was able to leap into the passing lane as a result of this deal with the Turks and the Muslims. Um, but also, if you read the speech carefully, he's basically calling for regime change in China, which is quite stunning and remarkable. But anyway, to get back to the 1500s, um, so this is taking place in the context of a religious conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants. It reaches a kind of zenith in 1572 with the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, when in a praxis that's eventually used promiscuously, promiscuously against Native Americans in North America, the Protestants were invited to a meeting in France in 1572, and uh, the Catholics fall upon them and massacre them. Thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of massacres. The king, his Catholic majesty in Spain, supposedly does, does a little jig, a little dance, and joy and happiness and exuberance at, at, when he's informed of this bloodshed. And of course, there's an ongoing effort to topple Queen Elizabeth uh, herself, it leads to um, interesting alliances between Irish Catholics and Spanish Catholics. It leads to interesting alliances between uh, Scots, who are not reconciled to London's rule, and France, the so-called Old Alliance, as we would say in English. And it also helps to contribute to the founding of the settlement known as St. Augustine in Florida, which built itself as the oldest and longest-running urban node in North America, founded by the Spanish in the context of sharp contestation uh, with, with the French, uh, with French Protestants in particular. And um, this is an important development because with the founding of Florida, which is in many ways founded as sort of a backup to Cuba. Uh, that is to say, the wealth that's being plundered from the Americas by his Catholic majesty, it's coming from Peru, and it's coming from New Spain, Mexico. And then, particularly for Mexico, it's being transported by Cuba, where it's then preyed upon by English pirates like Sir Francis Drake and French Huguenot pirates and pirates of various sorts. And so Florida was a backup to Cuba. Um, it's also striking to note that there is a difference, a sharp difference that I underscore and underline repeatedly in this book between the qualifications for settlement as laid down by his Catholic majesty and the qualifications for settlement as laid down by Protestant London. That is to say, his Catholic majesty uh, was willing to allow for black conquistadors. Uh, that is to say, uh, Africans who profess Catholicism or allowed to share in the colonial feast and the colonial plunder. Um, and in fact, uh, just to digress on this point for a second, if you look at Stono's Revolt, 1739 in South Carolina, an English settlement, the bloodiest slave revolt in the history of the Anglosphere in North America. In many ways, as I talk about in my book on 1776, is induced by black men in military uniforms from Spanish Florida crossing the border to stir up the Negroes. And, interestingly enough, as I tell the story of 1776, recall that through military maneuvers, Britain was able to seize temporarily Florida by 1776. So it was a colony, a settlement. But unlike the 13 colonies, it did not rebel against London's rule. 
I suspect, I hypothesize that it has something to do with that uh, potent black heritage, whereby you had Negro conquistadors who were unwilling to join a slaveholders' revolt since they already recognized that in the Anglosphere there was this binary process uh, that was unfolding whereby if you were defined as white, <laughs> for example, uh, you were kind of a new aristocracy, <laughs> and if you were black, you were the mutzil of society, which did not leave much room for a black conquistador. And then when Spain was able to gain back the colony uh, 200 years ago, and then was forced by the United States to disgorge it, 1819 to 1820, as I say in my book, uh, Negro Comrades of the Crown, you have a steady exit of black people from Florida heading south to Cuba, because they wanted no parts of the United States of America. And those that remained helped to instigate some of the bloodiest wars the United States faced before Vietnam, 1819, 1820, uh, 1830s, 1850s, before the black people and their indigenous allies we call the Seminoles were ousted altogether in a process of ethnic cleansing and forced to remove to the Texas-Mexico border uh, where their descendants continued to reside. So in any case, uh, this question of Florida, it seems to me, is key to a newer, and I might say more accurate, understanding of this process of settler colonialism and the triumph of the Anglosphere. Because I think some of the historians, they take so much for granted. I mean, first of all, they, they, they take for granted the, this concept of whiteness. It doesn't need any interrogation, uh, even though it's obviously a rather motley combination of those who had been warring on the shores of Europe, English versus Irish, uh, Christian versus Jewish, uh, Scott versus English, British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, French Protestant versus French Catholic, Serb versus Croat, all these different European ethnicities, magically, as they cross the Atlantic, in a process of rebranding that would make Madison Avenue blush, they're all rebranded as, quote, white. And then that's taken for granted <laughs> by their stories. Like, white is a, is a term that needs no poking, needs no interrogation, uh, needs no inspection, which is really malpractice, if you think about it. It's really sort of a militarized identity politics that helps to explain uh, and helps to shed light on this slogan that's arisen on the streets of Portland in the last few weeks, Portland, Oregon, that is to say, stolen people on stolen land. That's one of the slogans, which is, once again, to digress, that's remarkable because I think most movements, even radical movements in the United States in recent decades, somehow they try to position themselves as a continuation of 1776. Uh, you might recall that the Communist Party, its cadre training school in the United States, it was called the Jefferson School of Social Science, interestingly enough. Now, no, no self-respecting radical, I hope today, would try to say they're walking in the footsteps of a man who owned hundreds of slaves and has been credibly accused, accused of child abuse in terms of this relationship with Sally Hemings. So that shows how, how far we may have come. I'm not sure if the historians have caught up with what's going on in the streets, but eventually they will. But anyway, to, to, to go back to Florida, it's interesting that as England, uh, as a result of its deal, not only with Ottoman Turks, but Morocco, which I'll come to in a second, um, they are, first of all, they try to establish a settlement in what they call Roanoke in today's North Carolina, near the Virginia border. For various reasons, it did not take flight before. There were other attempts as well, not only by uh, London, but by the French as well, before the French, and what we now call Canada, before the settlement in what they call Virginia takes off in 1607. Now, when, this, when the English are arriving in 1607 into what they call Virginia, Spain is well aware of this from their perch in St. Augustine and from Cuba. 
but they're unable to do anything about it because they're tied down fighting the indigenous population and the Africans, sometimes separately, sometimes in alliance, that is to say the indigenous and the Africans. And that allows London to waltz in to what they call Virginia, and then subsequently it established this colony a few years later in what they call Massachusetts. Now, I said I was going to get back to Morocco, and this is part of the process, because basically another turning point that goes along with the Protestant Reformation, in the 15th, at least reaching England in the 1530s, Martin Luther, 1517, Christopher Columbus, 1492, uh, St. Augustine being formed, 1565, St. Bartholomew's Massacre, 1572, uh, the attempt to establish Roanoke in the 1580s, the failed attempt to topple Queen Elizabeth by the Spanish and the Spanish Armada in the 1580s. Another turning point is 1591, when the English collaborate with the Muslim rulers of Morocco, although it may be hard for some to imagine, but Morocco was a major power at that time. As a matter of fact, I tell a story subsequently about <laughs> how they're coming into Europe, raiding for slaves. Not, of course, not, not like the Europeans raided in Africa, but it, it was going on uh, as late as the 1620s, for example. So in any case, in 1591, the English-Moroccan alliance attacks the Songhai Empire, uh, a political formation, a potent political formation in the area around today's uh, nation known as Mali. And of course, some of your readers and listeners may be familiar with the history of Timbuktu and the and the manuscripts from Timbuktu preceding uh, 1591, going back hundreds of years, uh, which have been rescued not only by U.S. scholars, but interestingly enough, by then South African President uh, Thabo Mbeki, uh, who succeeds Nelson Mandela. Um, in any case, the Moroccans and the English, they sweep into the Songhai Empire, uh, destabilize the Songhai Empire, which then has negative knock-on effects throughout the sub-region, including uh, today's Senegal, today's Gambia, today's Cote d'Ivoire, uh, today's Ghana, even as far south as Nigeria, which then softens up the, the West African sub-region for the onrushing African slave trade, which England becomes a pioneer in, and which, of course, helps to explain, in part, why this person of African descent that you're talking to is on your Skype calls speaking this language developed in Northwestern Europe. It, it seems like this is also a story that hinges not only on um, this constellation of, of alliances and, and, and struggles both in Europe and, and in the broader Atlantic world, but more specifically on the usefulness and the shifting usefulness of race and religion, or what we would now group as, yes. as those things. Yes. The yes. usefulness for your actors, but also for us in, in trying to understand yes. the shifting sands of these two sort of factors, in particular in carrying out and understanding what you call the euphemism of modernity. Um, yes. So what do these two things have to do with one, one another then when we're talking about these remarkable transitions over the course of the last several centuries, in fact. Well, one of the points that I argue in this book is that increasingly, as time wears on, and the Protestants who are a decentralized religion, as opposed to the relative homogeneity of Catholicism, with the Pope and the Vatican at the top of the heap, whereas you have all of these different sects that quickly become re redefined as religions, including Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, the U.S.-based religions like the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And in some ways, I argue in the book that the 
Catholics and the Spanish in some ways take religion too seriously in, in terms of this religious qualification for settlement. Whereas increasingly, as already suggested, the Protestant powers, the scrappy underdogs who are under the gun, are much more pragmatic and are willing to accept those with whom they had been in conflict with. I mean, it's, it's well known that Martin Luther was a huge anti-Semite, but that doesn't prevent these Protestants who profess to be walking in his footsteps, that doesn't prevent them from accepting Jewish settlers. And so what happens is that as the Protestants, and increasingly the Anglosphere, uh, gain ascendancy, you have a retreat from religion as an axis of society to what we call race. Now, it's a gradual process. In my 17th century book, I talk about how at some point in Barbados, which likes to call itself the, the first English colony, although one can quarrel with that, but that's, that's, that's what it advertises itself as. At a certain point, the enslaved are being castigated as heathens and non-Christians and non-believers, and at a certain point, they're being castigated as being part of an inferior grouping, not part of the human family, uh, outside of the human family, which, of course, allows Thomas Jefferson, uh, without worrying about contradiction, to talk about all men are created equal, because he didn't necessarily consider these folks who are not defined as white as being part of that subset known as men, or the subset known as humans. And then, of course, it reaches a kind of zenith in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which calls for religious liberty, which has been saluted by Enlightenment scholars for decades on end, credulous Enlightenment scholars at that. As a matter of fact, these scholars are so credulous, I was thinking that if I call myself Napoleon Bonaparte, they start asking me about, well, how is Elba? You know, I mean, what about that retreat from, from Russia? Do you think you made a mistake? You know, they're very credulous. You know, they, they, they tend to, to accept, at least in this context, whatever these people are putting forward. But of course, as I tell the story, uh, religious liberty is a part of the consolidation of settler colonialism uh, because it allows for the admission of these warm bodies irrespective of what religion they profess to become involved in the colonial plunder and the colonial pillage. And then, of course, in terms of this process, another process unfolds in the wake of the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, uh, which helps to ignite a general crisis of that entire system of race with the creation of the first black republic and its ability to maneuver diplomatically uh, on behalf of other black people, which I talk, talk about in my book, Confronting Black Jacobins, and then the alliance with British abolitionists in particular, and putting pressure on the United States, uh, and putting pressure on Britain to uh, abolish this role in the African slave trade by 1807, slavery itself by the 1830s, and then putting pressure on Texas, seceding from Mexico in 1836, uh, to the point where many of the Euro-Texans were fearing that they were going to be ousted altogether, and there would be a Haitian-British condominium to create a new black state in Texas, which unfortunately did not take place. In any case, then they put sufficient pressure on the United States, and then it leads to the U.S. Civil War. After that, of course, you have the rise of unions, you have the rise of the class project. And in the 20th century, followed by the socialist project, which is an extension of the class project. So, in my estimation, inevitably, when you had a retreat of the class project, which we faced in recent decades, and in a certain sense, you've had a devaluation of the currency that is whiteness, when as a result of the anti-Jim Crow movement and the, the civil rights movement, buoyed by allies and national liberation movements in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, buoyed by the socialist camp, which allowed many black people, such as myself, to be admitted into the hollowed halls of these universities and then becoming stiff competition for those to find us white with regard to the middle strata. Not necessarily with regard to joining the ruling class, by the way. 
<laughs> but certainly competition in the middle strata. And inevitably that leads to uh, revolt amongst many of those defined as white, which you see in Little Rock in 1957, uh, Oxford, Mississippi, 1962, Boston, 1970s, etc. And then, of course, November 2016, which is another sort of revolt. And it's unclear if that revolt will be repeated in November 2020. That is to say, it's unclear as of July 31st, uh, 2020. And inevitably, as well, in that context, you would also have a reaffirmation and a resurgence of the religious factor, um, as evidenced by recent Supreme Court decisions in the United States, which uh, reassert and reaffirm this question of religious liberty, an opinion spearheaded by John Roberts. And as Linda Greenhouse in the New York Times has pointed out, many people have been prematurely talking about this transformation of the U.S. Supreme Court. But John Roberts is very clear about two issues, religion and racism. Uh, that is to say, pushing this First Amendment interpretation of religion and giving religious schools the right to hire and fire willy-nilly on whatever basis they choose, including religious basis, having employers deny women the right to contraceptive based upon their interpretation of religion. And then, of course, he's very clear with regard to the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and being hostile to affirmative action as well. So uh, this this triptych, this 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 triple this triple phenomenon of religion to race to class, I think it's a useful lens through which to view events of the past few centuries. And I think in, in trying to bring those pieces out, I, I was struck in reading your book that, you know, it's this work of remarkable synthesis that I think, you know, to be explicit about it, does a remarkable job of, of naming the stakes of the subjects that it's talking about. The, the contemptible is named with real contempt in this work, which is not always the case as you put it in historical writing. And so I'm curious about the process of laying a story out that has so many moving parts and such, um, such clear, shall we say, political stakes, um, how, how did, does one go about constructing and writing a book such as this when it's as much narrative, as much pacing, as much style that goes into the conclusions that the reader is, is, is meant to, to take away? How, could you talk us through kind of how you went about sitting down and putting this story together when those are all the pieces that you had to keep in the air? Well, first of all, of course, there's the, <laughs> there are the two standbys. Chronology and theme. <laughs> I mean, chronology, I, th I, mean, I think chronology is important. <laughs> you know, when you trace a story, uh, in, in this case, in some ways from 1095 up to the present, well, in terms of bringing the reader along with you on this twisting road, chronology is very important because it helps the reader to situate himself, herself, themselves, in time and space. So it's very, chronology is very important. And, and then, of course, I'm, I'm trying to tell a story where even though there's zigs and zags, oftentimes one thing leads to another. And, I mean, for example, as I was just discussing a moment ago, so you have 1453, and the Muslims seem to be on the march, and in response, the Iberians, who fortunately for them um, are bound by the sea, begin to move west as the Muslims are moving west. So, so 1453 leads to 1492, for example. Just like 1517, the Protestant Reformation, leads to the 1530s with Henry VIII and religious conflicts reaching a zenith in the 1570s and France. So, so chronology is very important. And then, of course, there's theme. Um, the, the good thing about theme is that you can weave theme through your chronology. Uh, all you have to do is have a section break, <laughs> for example, in your chapter. I mean, so, for example, if you're writing about the, uh, 
the uh, 1580s, you can, or let's say, let's say the 1570s, you could have, you could talk chronologically about Lepanto, which is a real setback for the Ottoman Turks when they're ganged up on by the Catholic powers. And then you could talk about that, have a section break, <laughs> and then move to the effort uh, simultaneously of the Catholic powers or the Catholics in France massacring the French Huguenots, the French Protestants in 1572, and then another section break, and the attempt to overthrow Queen Elizabeth because she's seen as a heretical, and then how that leads to increased repression on English Catholics. So I think chronology and theme are very important. Now, in terms, when I first started, uh, say, let's take my 1776 book. I have to say that the traditional story of 1776 didn't make any sense to me uh, to begin with. Um, particularly in the context of living in the United States, where these, these folks in the United States, they're critical of every revolutionary process. I mean, you got people making big livings, criticizing the French Revolution, Russian Revolution, Chinese Revolution, Cuban Revolution. Boy, they're skeptics. And woo. But when it comes to 1776, it's immaculate conception. You know, it's, like, it's all good. You know. And that didn't make any sense to me. Particularly, uh, you know, being a black person. And I, I remember when I, when I first started uh, going to London to do research, I was always being a, a, a parochial provincial. I was always struck by how I was treated so much better in London than I was in the United States, even though I was born. And of course, I, I know about accent discrimination in London, and that if I had a Jamaican or a Nigerian accent, I might have been treated differently. I was aware of that. And so that then that made me think about um, well, why is that? <laughs> you know, I mean. Shouldn't I be treated better where I was born than in some foreign country? So when I started the 1776, what I started to do was go through as many books as I could about uh, settler colonialism in North America before 1776 and see what was said about black people. And that became my, my initial research project. And... And so then a picture began to emerge once I began that process. And that became my skeleton uh, that was then fleshed out by a primary research, particularly since I, I, I take it I'm, I'm speaking to many historians. And I would say this to you as well, given your project, that um, the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, is really... I mean, I've been doing research there for years, and just about any project, I would say, over the last 600 years, um, although they have particular strengths, like in the archive, but just about any project over the last 600 years, and particularly projects concerning North America, it's malpractice not to visit there. And then, so then, once you, you begin to visit a place like the Huntington, inevitably, for these projects that I'm working on, that is to say, pre-U.S. history, pre-1776 history, it leads you to like-minded archives, like Brown University, the John Carter Brown Library, Massachusetts Historical Society, New York Historical Society, uh, etc. So, so to, to sum up, uh, part of the process for doing these books is one, chronology, second, theme. Um, third, <laughs> my own personal experience, being, being a black person in North America, it's, right a, it's like, just like my students in Introduction to African American Studies. Oftentimes when they come to the classroom, the question they want to answer, at least the black students, is why are we treated so terribly? You know, which is a good question. Whereas, interestingly enough, the non-black students, when they come into the class, they, they, the question they want to answer is, is there anything redeemable about the United States of America? Now, those are two different inquiries altogether. And I have to say, I'm more sympathetic to the former, because that's what was motivating me, uh, than the latter. And so that personal um, issue was point number three. And then point number four, just to reiterate, would be 
Take a look at the 1776 book, and to a certain degree for this book in hand, I, I go through the literature and try to see how black people are, are, are being referenced and being treated, and use that as a framework, and then go into primary sources. And it, it strikes me that um, a lot of what you're talking about is, is not necessarily solely motivated by looking at the sort of foundations of today's social relations, but that's part of where the story leads. And, you know, we were talking earlier about some of those things being, you know, the place of, of investigating the global um, as a factor in what's going on in the U.S. Part of that is looking at where a formation like the European Union comes from. Oh, yes, yes. You know, there are all of these sorts of pieces um, that, that I, you know, as you argue, are foundational to understanding social formations today. It seems like um, a lot of them, if not um, exist as analogies in, in what you're talking about, but, but more often exist as direct sort of causal links um, to the formations we're seeing. Can you, can you talk us through some, some of that and how you arrived at, at those conclusions? Well, I'll answer briefly and then you can follow up. Um, like the point of, it, it occurred to me after this book was published, and sadly enough, uh, that in some ways, in talking about settler colonialism in the Anglosphere, I was talking about a European Union, because basically they're inviting in not only, actually it's even broader than the European Union, because not only are they inviting in to use that concept from the 1980s, anyone from the Atlantic to the Urals in Russia, and then having that congeal into a coherent whole, just like the European Union now, 27, 28 strong, is trying to have these disparate nations cohere into a whole. And of course, um, it has a larger population in the United States. By some measures, it has a, a larger economy than the United States. Uh, there's a new book called The Brussels Effect by Anu A.N.U. Bradford at Columbia Law School. Uh, and the subtitle is something like How the EU Rules the World, um, which the casual listener or reader might see as something of a stretch, but she does make a, a, a case for that. And one of the questions I did not answer, and, and of course, in these projects, hopefully you can answer the questions that you pose. I guess one of the reasons I didn't include this European Union analogy in this book is that I haven't been able to come to an answer, even as of today, as to how the rise and success of the United States might have influenced the trajectory of the European Union. Now, I know, like many of your listeners and readers do, that initially Washington was pro-EU because they saw it as a further bulwark against the then Soviet Union and its allies. Um, but in the new memoir, Tell All Memoir by John Bolton, The Room Where It Happens, he quotes Trump repeatedly. Matter of fact, it seems to be like a repetitive theme in an opera that Trump sees the EU as second only to China as an antagonist and has a particular antipathy to Angela Merkel of Germany. We actually throws things at in meetings. Contempt, which of course is going to make it difficult to you to sign on to this regime change agenda in China, but we shall see. But, um, so what I haven't been able to figure out is, so, so to what extent did the rise of the United States, even setting aside the Soviet Union and the post-Soviet era, to what extent did that influence the trajectory of the European Union? Um, to what extent is, is um, Brussels in some ways emulating Washington? I haven't been able to answer that question. And I should also go back to an earlier question the United States, in many ways, is broader than the European Union. Because, as I pointed out in my 1770s, no, it's my 17th century book, that this also ties into the religious roots of racism as well. 
which is that you can have Lebanese Christians who can be defined as white in the United States of America, like Ralph Nader, for example. He's from a Lebanese Christian family. The um, late comedian Danny Thomas and his daughter Marla Thomas married to Phil Donahue, Lebanese Christian. I'm not sure if that applies to Lebanese Muslims, for example. Um, Iranian Jewish folk are defined as white. You know, there's a whole huge population of them in Los Angeles, for example, to, to the extent that it's sometimes referred to as Tehranjalis. I'm not so sure if that applies to Iranian Muslims, for example. So in some ways, the United States is even broader and more capacious uh, than the European Union. And of course, th that point that I just uttered, it ties into why this U.S. propaganda has been so successful. Uh, because it remains true. Well, I shouldn't say it remains true. It has been true that many migrants can come to North America and do well as long as they sign up to the program. Uh, to, yeah, I, I need not articulate what the program is. And you mentioned earlier when you were talking about the kinds of questions that come up when you teach, for example, African-American studies, um, you know, the, the things that your students are asking, which makes me wonder also how this work um, and the work before it about the 17th century and so on has affected or been affected by your practice as, as an educator. And, and do you imagine we could teach a work like this, you know, right alongside some of the some of the more typical um, sort of introductory texts um, for undergraduates or, you know, part of what you've suggested is that it requires a bit of a rethinking of those very precepts. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, again, how your work as an educator, as a teacher has, um, yeah, b bled into your writing about the, the foundations mm -hmm. of white supremacy, the dawning of the apocalypse. Well, you know, my, my writing and teaching, <laughs> unsurprisingly, or, or congruent. <laughs> that is to say, when I, when I teach, particularly if I teach Introduction to African American Studies, I want to situate the students in terms of time and space, situate the students in terms of chronology and theme. So, inevitably, the first question on the midterm exam and the final exam is beginning in 1095, write a essay summarizing the major themes that led to the creation of the United States of America, that led to the arrival of Africans on these shores, etc. Uh, and of course, <laughs> that's what these books have been dealing with. So the, the teaching and the writing uh, go hand in glove. Now, <laughs> fortunately, at least fortunately for me, and I would say fortunately for the students too, there are uh, many audio-visual audio aids. Uh, there are many very useful documentaries. And even when they're not useful, there's something to teach against. I mean, you can stop the documentary and interrogate a particular point that should be disputed, for example. And that's, I think, very useful for students to, to see what's on the printed page, be visualized. And, of course, the, the way that hypertext is moving, uh, eventually, I think, we'll be publishing books. Well, actually, we already publish books with links, but, but even, even more so. Um, whereas, for example, if I talk about St. Bartholomew's Massacre, I could click on a link and come up with a French film about uh, St. Bartholomew's, a clip from a French film talking about St. Bartholomew's master. So I think that uh, this scholarship process and this teaching process, I think they tend to go uh, hand in hand. They're hand in glove. Um, because it's just, for example, this... Um, the 16th century book, in terms of sending it to reviewers, 
I'm, I'm writing this book for primarily for a black American audience, and I'm writing it for a left-wing audience, and I'm writing it for a black left-wing audience. Those three categories, which at some points overlap. And so when I sent out review copies, I only sent it to one journal, one academic journal, uh, which is the Journal of African American History, which, by the way, is a publication of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, which is not just a scholarly group. As, as a matter of fact, it's comprised heavily of black Americans who are interested in black history, because unsurprisingly, you have many black Americans who are asking that question my students ask. You know, how did we get here? You know, and why are we treated so terrible? And so, so, so it's, it's a combination of scholarly organization and community organization uh, with a journal. And, and, and admittedly, most of the writing in the journal is done by scholars. So, with, with respect, I, I wasn't, it's just like my 1776 book. I mean, even though it was published by an academic press, I was writing it for similar audiences. But then I think, and actually I have reason to believe, that it influenced black people with the New York Times, who then carries forward in the 1619 Project, which then outrages and infuriates the historical establishment, which doesn't take this idea seriously of slavery being a motive force for the founding of the United States, because they're into this immaculate conception notion of the founding. And so uh, I'm doing, it's, it's the same process with the 16th century book. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm writing for those three audiences. And if the scholars want to come along, fine. If they don't want to come along, so be it. It seems to me that your book is really animated by these struggles over land, labor, capital. And you make a point really to explain how these particular junctures or configurations were not inevitable, but rather came about through various yes. processes that people who are reading your work, whether they're students, whether they're activists, whether they're members of the public who are not at all involved in academia, these are processes that people can understand because they see them right in front of them and they see them in other things that they're reading and, and thinking through. Things like class antagonism, things like massive changes in population and in place. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm really curious about when you write, um, how you work to square this incredible contingency that you're describing, the, you know, the non-inevitable and the simultaneous tectonic structural shifts that your book is laying out, you know, zooming in and out between something like a, like a massacre, like a rebellion, um, like something that isn't quite coincidence, but might as well be. And then these massive shifts in land, labor, capital over centuries and centuries. How do you square the contingency and the structure that's sort of woven through through all of this? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the short answer is that you're correct to suggest that I see many of these events I describe as not being inevitable. Um, even something as fundamental as the construction of whiteness. I don't necessarily see it as inevitable. To a certain extent, it's improvisation. <laughs> to a certain extent, it's creative adaptation to a perilous situation faced by the Protestants, particularly Protestant London. But once the contingent becomes a reality, that creates a new reality, which then has knock-on effects in terms of the seismic shifts you were just referring to. Um, that is to say, once you have the construction of this new identity that is whiteness, it obviously opens the door for the accumulation of a certain kind of wealth. It's a factor in terms of the, quote, success, unquote, of the uh, African slave trade, which in turn creates more wealth which in turn uh, helps to build a system known as capitalism. And so obviously there's a, a dialectical connection between the contingent, the improvisational, and 
the creation of a structure, the creation of a seismic shift, etc. And so I think it's then it's incumbent upon the writer explain to the audience how how these things unfold. And that's where I, I think chronology is so important. Because even though there's zigs and zags, usually as the song goes, the hip bone is connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bone is connected to the knee bone, etc. And um, so, yeah, at least that's the way I see things.